Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, a host of the Public Policy Channel. And today we are speaking with Christopher Ellis and Christopher Farisee, who are the authors of The Other Side of the Coin, Public Opinion Towards Social Tax Expenditures from the Russell Sage Foundation. And for the purposes of this conversation, we decided earlier that Christopher Ellis, we would call Christopher, and Christopher Farisee, we'll call Chris. So Christopher, Chris, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Um, so if you would, if you would, uh, maybe each of you tell us a little bit just about yourselves and, and where you are, and then talk a little bit about the book and how you came to write it and how you came to write it together. And why don't we start uh, with you, Chris? Thank you. Uh, my name is Chris Fersey, and I'm an associate professor and the O'Hanley uh, Scholar at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. And I'm uh, Chris Ellis. So I am the I'm a professor of political science and the director of the Institute for Public Policy at Bucknell University. Um, so to, to answer your questions as far as the book goes, so the genesis of the actual collaboration, I think, started as a friendship. We met in graduate school, God knows how long ago now, and, and sort of had, you know, social friendship, but I think uh, a mutual interest in the politics of inequality. I study public opinion and political representation, so I sort of have that side. Chris is more of a policy scholar doing tax policy and, and things like that. And so we've been kicking around the idea of, of doing a book that sort of merged our interests for quite some time. And, you know, with all of the, the you know, discussions about tax reform and, and tax simplicity and all this other stuff that we've seen over the past you know, six, seven years in American politics, it seemed like the right time to do it. Also sort of coinciding you know, not happily with the time of rising inequality in the United States. And we thought this could sort of find a way to shed some light on all that and bring those, those interests together. Yeah, that's right. We were actually, uh, we sat next to each other um, at UNC. The graduate carols were in what used to be an old hallway, believe it or not. Uh, And, you know, we developed a a friendship there. And as Chris said, uh, you know, found an intersection of our mutual interests. You know, and, and also we kind of recognized that the descriptions of social tax expenditures, things like uh, 401ks, the home mortgage interest deduction um, were exactly opposite of perceptions of traditional public programs. Uh, The role of government with social tax expenditures is perceived as smaller and working through the private sector. Uh, The people who mainly benefit from big programs are the wealthy um, compared to the perceptions of direct spending, which 
go towards poorer and more vulnerable populations, the ideological signals of social tax expenditures um, is a more conservative signal of policy uh, than direct programs like uh, welfare and food stamps and social security. So I remember, you know, having a discussion where we figured that whether people structure their opinions towards these programs in a way that's similar to public programs or different, there was a story either way. Uh, and, and one more thing I would add is that the existing explanations that were out there, especially uh, in public policy, um, didn't really have a role for public opinion to explain the rise of these programs within the American policy structure. So either the stories were stories of interest groups and parties kind of working together where public opinion wasn't even on the radar, or the story was that uh, people were kind of ignorant of these. Um, so, you know, we kind of wanted to examine um, what people knew about these programs, what they, you know, preferred about these programs, and how that might explain the rise of uh, tax expenditures over time. Great. So why don't, why don't we sort of pull apart some of those pieces one by one and make sure. First, I think that everybody knows that we are talking about. So so walk us through, when we're talking about a tax expenditure, uh, what are we talking about and why should we care? So a, a tax expenditure is kind of a budgetary term. Uh, how most folks who listen to the podcast would understand these are tax breaks. Uh, so it's tax season right now. The date's been extended to May uh, so as you're sitting down with your tax paperwork, uh, you have to fill in certain boxes. You know, do you, did you pay a home mortgage interest? Um, do you have children? Do those kids go to college? Uh, you might notice that some of the money uh, that you make uh, and contribute towards health care or pension plans are excluded from your taxable income. These are all types of benefits that the government has decided to give. Um, and they've done it through the tax code. So, you know, the government, as an example with healthcare, it can either provide healthcare directly through programs like Medicare, or it can subsidize employers and employees uh, to enroll in private healthcare insurance plans and then give them um, breaks through the tax code for those contributions. And Chris, um, these are not trivial expenditures, correct? No. Uh, it's, it's huge. I mean, it's over uh, a trillion dollars if you include all of these. And, you know, a lot of times when people hear tax breaks, they think, well, that you're, you're talking about corporate welfare. And the largest tax programs really are the ones that people are familiar with and they claim as individuals and households. Things like the tax exclusion for your employer health care, 401ks, IRAs, uh, things like the earned income tax credit. Uh, so not only are these a trillion dollars a year, um, but the ones that are the largest programs are ones that are intimately familiar to people and really make up a, a huge part of the way that we do public policy in America. So as we think about the, the, the scale of those programs, can you tell us a little bit about the profile of which Americans are most likely to benefit from those particular categories of programs? Yeah, sure. I mean, so these programs are, are claimed by Americans up and down the income spectrum. But as we sort of have seen from our research and prior research, 
most of them, the, the, the lion's share of the benefits go to, to wealthy taxpayers. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one, these deductions are only available to people who itemize their taxes, which again is, is very strongly correlated with income. Um, secondly, they tend to be, or at least some of them tend to be only available to people working full-time in benefits eligible jobs. For example, things like retirement savings or healthcare savings and things like that, which again, sort of skews fairly high income and income secure. And the third thing is that they're presented as deductions from a tax code that is progressive, right? The more money that you make, the higher percentage that you pay in taxes on each extra marginal dollar. And so if you're able to deduct these from a higher, from basically paying a higher percentage of your income in taxes, then there's more tax savings for, for wealthier people than there are for lower income people that pay a, a smaller marginal rate. So we've seen, you know, I, I guess over time, there's, there, it's not necessarily exclusive to wealthy people. There's some tax breaks and tax credits like the earned income tax credit that primary ben- primarily benefits low income individuals. But uh, most of the, of the major tax expenditures tend to benefit the wealthy. Um, this one stands in contrast to most direct government spending, you know, things like, like spending on public health, public works, education where we know the spending distribution is progressive, right? It, it tends to do what, what progressive systems do, which is take money from the wealthy and spend it on, on either everyone or low-income citizens. And if anything, we've seen the skew in, in who benefits from tax expenditures become even larger over time, particularly after the, um, the Trump tax reform, which among other things had the effect of, of making it harder for people to itemize their taxes or make, make, make fewer people itemize their taxes. So again, we've seen things like the mortgage interest tax deduction skew even more wealthy after that. So we've got uh, 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 now a fairly robust academic literature on this question that variously characterizes these programs as part of a, a divided welfare state, a hidden welfare state, a submerged welfare state. And, and that literature sits in many ways at the heart of what you all are engaged in trying to understand. So so can you lay out a little bit about sort of what is that conventional academic wisdom and and what are you finding wrong with that? So the idea, as you laid out, that these programs are hidden or submerged is largely found in the process through which they're passed um, in government, right? So... Uh, Typically, a lot of major programs are passed through the budget process, and the budget process uh, goes through a substantive committee, goes through some type of financial committee. There are you know, hearings on the budget, the media reports on the budget. So because of the process through which they're passed, they're, conce- they're, they're seen as visible. In addition to how they're administered, that you know, if someone gets a Social Security check, uh, they get it in the mail. They get it into their bank account. If they have problems, they can go to a Social Security office um, near their house. So both the process through which these are passed and how they're administered are considered to be uh, visible to the public. Um, social tax uh, expenditures, uh, in contrast, are portrayed as hidden or submerged because they are first, they're passed through an off-budget process. Um, so they're not part of the budgetary process. They're oftentimes passed as part of, uh, omnibus bills or revenue bills. Uh, and therefore that process is seen as being kind of underwater, uh, uh, hidden 
and therefore the media doesn't report on it. There aren't, you know, committee hearings uh, with an off-budget process. They're actually reported as a, a appendix to the actual budget. So for all those reasons, um, it's considered to be hidden, as well as the fact that the process as it's presented in this literature through which people claim these is through the arcane complex process of doing your taxes. Um, and therefore the idea is people might receive these, but not recognize um, that they receive these. And this is kind of largely the argument of uh, Suzanne Mettler with the submerged state. Uh, one, of, one of the things that we argue in our book is that, you know, first that we show that these programs are really popular, right? So uh, that, when you ask people about the major social tax expenditure programs, the home mortgage interest, the tax exclusion for health insurance, 401ks, you're getting 60 to 70 percent, 60 to 70 percent support of the general public, and you're getting majority support across partisanship and across ideology. So, at least when you, at face, ask people about these, they seem pretty popular. And, you know, another argument we make in this book, which is uh, kind of a sub-argument, but goes um, in direct face of the literature that you have mentioned, is we think that people are aware that they receive these. Um, and we provide evidence that people who are eligible for these programs um, are the strongest supporters. So, so first, the theoretical side. Uh, when you go through the process of claiming these tax expenditures, although the administrative part, yes, is, is hidden, it's part of your overall tax bill, you have to gather paperwork for your mortgage interest deduction, right? Your people who are in jobs where they get healthcare insurance and are part of 401ks are aware of their status in those programs. Uh, they're they're onboarded through human resources. They're given documentation throughout the year. They're given updates about changes to their healthcare insurance, to their 401ks. Um, so although the administration of these programs might be hidden, uh, both people's enrollment in the categories that are eligible for these are not hidden. And the process that people have to go through in order to claim these benefits is active and requires people to uh, every year kind of gain knowledge or remember that they are eligible for these. Um, so that's our argument that these are maybe less hidden than um, theorized. And on top of that, um, in our kind of multivariate analysis, when we throw everything in the kitchen sink into uh, examining what predicts support for these programs, the number one predictor across all of these major programs is whether or not you are eligible. And we're even talking about fine-grained enough analysis where we're looking at someone who is actively paying their mortgage versus someone who has their home paid off is more supportive of these programs. And, you know, someone who gets health care insurance uh, through their employer uh, is more supportive than someone who gets uh, health care insurance through uh, the private market. So, um, you know, both for the theoretical argument and also the analysis we have, um, we think that uh, these programs are less hidden um, than, than theorized uh, by Suzanne Mettler. And it, the fact that they are less hidden is part of the reason for their 
widespread popularity. So people know about them, they like them, and the best predictor for who is likely to favor them is whether they identify themselves as perfect, personally benefiting from them or not. Um, and as you pointed out, this is disproportionately uh, a whiter and wealthier population that is benefiting from this particular arm of the welfare state. Um, but another piece of, of what you discover is not just that people are in support of programs delivered through the tax code rather than those more visible traditional kinds of programs, uh, but that you find that people would prefer that programs be delivered through the tax code rather than through direct spending. Walk us through what you find and why you think that is. Yeah, so I think that's that's the core part of the argument for for things like policy implications. So basically, and, and you're right. I mean, the, the the core finding is we like a lot of these programs not just because we're eligible, although that matters, and not just because of the services they provide, but precisely because they're delivered through the tax code. And, and this is our reasoning as to why. So in some of my my previous work with uh, with Jim Stimson, who's, who's one of the giants of, of public opinion research. We sort of expanded on the idea, it wasn't ours to invent, but sort of expanded on it, the idea that the American public is what we call operationally liberal, but symbolically conservative. And what that means is that all else equal, people care about inequality, they want government to help the poor, they support sort of a stronger government role in things like regulation and redistribution. And to some extent, even in our, our polarized time, this, this extends across, uh, across party lines, right? That there are lots of, of Republicans, for example, that, that share this view that the government should be doing more in some ways to, to, at, at the operational level, at the level of the public program and the individual recipient of government aid to be helping people, right? To sort of, you know, level off the edges of the free markets and things like that. At the same time, we also know that the public is, is generally pretty distrustful of government, right? Think that government is maybe not corrupt, but certainly wastes money, is inefficient, is ineffective, sort of barks up the wrong tree a lot. And so we have this ambivalence in, in public opinion where people want government to do more to solve social problems because we identify a lot of social problems that need to be solved. But at the same time, they don't trust government to do it right. And so that, that sort of explains a lot of the opposition to, to direct spending on public programs. It's not necessarily a, a dislike of, of the, the recipients themselves or, or what the program is intended to do, but a distrust of government to actually do it right. And so we sort of argue that the tax expenditures kind of fit this perfect niche with what the public, where the public is when it comes to, to public opinion on social welfare, which is they do work to ident solve identified social problems, whether or, or social, they do work to provide social policy in identified areas, whether it's sort of like providing healthcare, retirement security, or home ownership, or, or education, or whatever. But at the same time, by basically incentivizing the private sector, individuals and firms and markets to, to provide these benefits, then people who are proponents of these things can claim that they do both things, right? That they solve social problems or they, they work towards goals that the public supports, but at the same time, it's not direct government involvement. And so in the book, what we did was a series of, of survey experiments where we essentially took, in some cases, real, in some cases, hypothetical social programs, everything from things to subsidize house, home ownership or college tuition or whatever, and basically presented them to two separate respondents, set, sets of respondents in two ways. One, we described the program, its cost, its likely beneficiaries, its likely consequences, but said it was going to be delivered through direct government spending. Government was either going to issue checks or provide services directly. 
And for a second group of respondents, same cost, same recipients, same respondents. But we said this was going to be done through the tax code. People can claim tax credits for, for participating or engaging in certain activities. And we found that the exact same programs were more popular in almost all cases when they were delivered through the tax code than when they were delivered through direct spending. And we saw that, that the frame mattered most for the people who kind of expect it to, to matter most for, which is people who don't trust government but care about inequality, people that sort of make up this kind of ambivalent middle of American politics. And I think to sort of just to follow along with that, we see, and I think this is, this is sort of important when we talk about framing welfare policy, we see that attitudes toward the policies are shaped by how they're delivered, direct spending or tax code. But we also see that the attitudes toward the recipients of these programs themselves are, are shaped by how they receive benefits. So one of the, the, the sort of key things that, that predicts whether people are supposed social welfare programs in the United States is, is a real simple heuristic of, do we think that the people who are getting aid deserve it or not? Right? Are they sort of the deserving, poor, hardworking, trying to make something of themselves, or are they sort of the lazy, taking advantage of the system type? And there's all sorts of different kinds of stereotypes and whatever that go into that. But we also found, again, through a separate set of experiments, that when you frame someone as receiving aid through a direct government subsidy or direct government check, they're actually perceived as less deserving of what they get than someone who receives the exact same money for the exact same thing, but they claim it as a deduction on their taxes, right? So we see that there's a whole bunch of different stuff there that all points toward people prefer spending be done through the tax code than spending be done directly. And of course, this drives a lot of economists nuts because there's, there's no shortage of, of literature on, on the inefficiency of tax expenditures and, and you know, the fact that people don't claim deductions they're eligible for and so on and so forth. But from a public opinion sort of pragmatic standpoint, these programs are more likely to work because they're more likely to be popular. I want to come back around to that point, but while you're there, can I get either of you just to talk about the role that race plays in this this deservingness construction of worthiness of of recipients question? Yeah, sure. So uh, there's a another literature in political science that looks at at the impact of of racial considerations on support for social welfare, particularly downward distributing programs like welfare. And we find that, you know, say, take welfare, for example, which is, you know, factually a race neutral program. Race isn't written in, in welfare policy at all. But we find that predictors of welfare support, and not just us, but lots of people before us, predictors of support or opposition to, to welfare spending is driven in part by stereotypes of the poor, do we think they're lazy, undeserving, whatever, but even more strongly by stereotypes of African Americans, right? So welfare is sort of what we call a race coded policy which is even though race isn't part of the policy, people view it in racialized ways, right? And to sort of put it more bluntly, there are people who would otherwise support more welfare spending that oppose it simply because there's a connotation that most of the recipients are blacks and African-Americans are lazy, right? That's the stereotype and, and, and whatever. And so what we find also is that the, and so we find sort of what other people in, in, in prior work have found when it comes to race and direct spending, right? That people with more people with more sort of negative racial stereotypes, people higher in symbolic racism, things like that, are less likely to support welfare policy. But that relationship is less true when it comes to spending on the poor through the tax code. And again, we sort of argue that because this stuff is is driven through the tax code and because we tend to think of taxpayers, Vanessa Williamson has an excellent book on this. We tend to think of taxpayers as inherently deserving, right? They're people playing by the rules and whatever. That if you deliver the benefits through the tax code, it sort of minimizes the impact of some of those racial stereotypes. 
because we don't go, you know, intuitively or quickly to, you know, the stereotypical welfare queen or all the other things that, that sort of go along with how people conceptualize welfare. But we think about taxpayers first and foremost, and that casts the beneficiaries in a bit of a different light. And it's to 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 highlight an, an argument you make explicitly in the book. If we if we think about the United States as becoming in increasingly less white, right, diverse in all kinds of ways. But I think the salient fact here, as we think about the way that that, that these constructions of of recipients play out and the policies play out, uh, becomes less and less white. Part of what you are arguing is that if we would like to maintain or increase broad-based support for government support of the population, perhaps we should be doing that through the tax code rather than those more visible programs that, as you pointed out, economists and policy scholars and even democratic theorists of some stripes would argue should be done much through much more direct and visible uh, means so 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 walk us through a little bit about your your thinking about that and how that might play out or how it should play out in your mind. Well, you know, I, I think a nice example of this is what's happened recently with the American Rescue Plan, and you know, two of the biggest provisions were the uh, expansion of the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit. And Chris and I worked on uh, uh, an op-ed in which we kind of argued that the the Republican dog that did not bark, that did not uh, generate opposition to this, in part was because two of the major programs that um, were used to help the working poor uh, were tax credits. Um, So it brings over conservatives. It brings over uh, people with low trust in government. And and what's interesting about these survey experiments is that it does not affect support among liberals or Democrats, right? So not only by taking a program and designing it as a tax credit, are you able to bring over groups who might be hesitant about government spending, but you do not depress support uh, among liberals or Democrats. So uh, these types of programs that target assistance to the poor um, are just more likely to be politically feasible, especially when you have a 50-50 Senate and um, have to get programs that target the poor through uh, senators that represent states like Wyoming and West Virginia. So what then do you make of those, those efficiency and accountability arguments then? Uh, I, I think they're real arguments, but uh, you know I, I see that as design issues. So let's take the, ty- the, the child tax credit um, expansion as one. I, like, there's no reason that the Biden administration can't beef up the IRS and um, create within the IRS an arm that makes sure that people who are eligible for this program get it. Um, and in addition, the way that it's designed, and this gets to the visibility, you know, hidden submerged state argument, the way it's designed is that uh, it seems as though the Treasury is going to rule on how frequent these payments are, but it's not going to be just one lump payment uh, at tax time, which has been one of the criticisms of tax expenditures. The child tax credit it looks like is going to be given, you know, at minimum, at least, at least every two and three months. 
right? So if, if you think about um, the visibility of these programs as just, you know, an example and whether or not people will be able to give credit to government for doing this. If you're a typical uh, middle-class family and you look at your bank account and your bank account every month has four green numbers that signify the checks that you and your spouse get and all the other numbers are black um, representing things that you're paying for. All of a sudden now, there's going to be a fifth green number in your monthly bank account that's going to say IRS or U.S. Treasury, and that'll be for the child tax credit. Right. So I, I think that you know, and there's no reason that other programs can't be designed like that. Um, so yes, right now they tend to be more inefficient, but you know, the the EITC has 78 percent uptake from people who are eligible. So could that number be better? Could it be 98% like it is for Social Security? Sure. But again, like that's a design issue where um, you, you could uh, either administratively or how the program is written um, get a larger uptake than, um, than you currently have. You raise the question as the book as to whether the, the very act of trying to use social tax expenditures to expand benefits will generate new resistance to them. Can you think a little uh, out loud about that? For, for is, is there a risk that if we start shift, shifting things into tax expenditures, then we just wind up, say, racializing tax expenditures? Yeah, I think that that risk is is always there. I mean, particularly in the current climate where we just, you know, we find an issue and, and sort of reflexively polarize almost at random. I mean, I think it's, yeah. it's sort of, it's hard to, to get around that in some ways. Um, but I think, you know, with that on the table, I think the risk is a little bit mitigated here, at least in some ways, because again, both both sides can sort of claim something out of this that they want, right? Which is, you know, Democrats want more social programs, Republicans want a smaller, leaner government. And so it's a bit of an uphill battle to polarize this or polarize it at least as quickly as you would with something like a direct spending program. So so certainly, I mean, I I can see us getting there, but something like the, the earned income tax credit, for example, has been you know, if you squint hard enough, a pretty bipartisan thing for quite some time. Marco Rubio made, made you know, among others, has made you know, noise about increasing it for quite some time. So while that's certainly a thing to worry about, I mean, I think it's less of a worry here than it would be in, in basically anything else you try to do when it comes to social policy. And, and you know, and, and if I can just add to this, uh, so Republicans have been criticized for not having policy proposals that are popular with the public. Um, one thing that protects these programs when they're offered by Democrats is that these are popular with Republicans. They are popular with conservatives. And another institutional protection against these is that, you know, people like Grover Norquist, uh, who, you know, is the president of the Americans for tax reform has declared tax expenditures as something that he considers not breaking the tax pledge which uh, Republican legislators, many Republican legislators have signed. I think I've missed that. So he, he, he doesn't count tax expenditures as spending. Yes, he doesn't count them as spending. <laughs> so, I mean, you have, you know, m- my first book, Welfare for the Wealthy, shows that Republicans systematically have increased these types of programs more than Democrats over time. 
you have, you know, like the, the tax pledge, this doesn't count as violating that. And these are popular with, um, with Republican voters. And, and one more thing I'd add, and this gets to the, to the racial element, is that right now, um, Chris Ellis and I are, are working with Ashley Jardina on the very early, early stages of a project to look at the role of white identity in shaping support for these types of programs to see if citizens who score higher on uh, white identity indices or scales um, are more favorable to these programs in a sense, you know, and if they are seeing these programs as, as for as far as like a, a type of social benefit that mainly benefits whites. Uh, Chris Ellis, final word, final thought. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know to go back to the submerged state argument. I think a lot of the uh, the the sort of dislike among tax expenditures in in public policy circles is not just due to their inefficiency, although it's that, but also the the notion that these things you know give wealthy people benefits in a way that most people don't understand or don't notice. And you know, we found you know I think some truth to that in our in our book too when we tested popularity of things like the mortgage introduction, it, mortgage interest deduction, or some heavily regressive progressive benefits, we found that if you frame something like that as a direct spending program, support dropped quite a bit and, and it sort of makes sense why. And almost if you frame the mortgage interest deduction as a direct spending thing, it almost sounds absurd, right? Yeah. We're going to send bigger checks to, we're going to send checks to people for owning homes with the bigger checks going to people who own the bigger homes. And that's just weird, right? And, and people don't necessarily like that, but because it's in the tax code, it's popular. And so that's sort of been kind of the, the, the norm in American politics for a while. But we sort of make the point in the conclusion, that there's no reason this has to be the case, right? That, that as long as tax credits are fully refundable, you can use these to do all sorts of things, right? Not just, you know, not just subsidize wages for the poor, but, but sort of fund universal pre-K or, or environmental initiatives or other programs like housing security programs. And so, you know, if you're interested in those things and you care about about inequality, but sort of are, are, are in this this bucket where you know that most Americans are sort of you know, reflexively skeptical of government's ability to do it, then these things provide a wonderful, I think, pragmatic opportunity, maybe not the most efficient opportunity, but pragmatic opportunity to start thinking about how we might you know, change the welfare state in a way that, that does more things, but also makes it more palatable to a, a larger number of people. You've been listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking uh, with uh, Christopher Ellis and Christopher Pharisee. I was going to say the Christophers, Ellis, and Pharisee, who are the authors of The Other Side of the Coin, Public Opinion Toward Social Tax Expenditures, uh, new out from the Russell Sage Foundation. Uh, Christopher and Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen.